Good morning. It's good to be together on this Lord's Day. As was said, we're thankful for each of you that are here this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We invite you back as you have the opportunity to be here and certainly are blessed by your presence this morning. I pray that the teaching will benefit you this morning. It's always our desire that the things that we say and teach are according to God's Word and will edify you in what we talk about this morning. I've learned over the years that one of the things that I've kind of got good at in life is looking at other people's problems and analyzing their problems or what they have wrong in their life or the things that they should be doing better in life or ways they could improve their life or make changes, however you want to say all that. You know, I think many times as we look at the scriptures, we tend to do the same thing. We read about men and women in the Bible that have issues or problems or did something to violate God's will. And um, it's kind of easy to pounce on the things that we read about. We're going to kind of do that this morning a little bit. There's a group of churches that we read about in the book of Revelation. Many of you may be familiar with the letters to the churches of Asia. I want to talk about them just for a little bit this morning. And certainly there's been entire sermon series and studies and you know, lengthy um, writings and conversations about these churches. And we don't have a desire to do that this morning, but maybe learn some specific and practical uh, things that we can that we can gain from looking at these churches. As John starts out in the book of Revelation, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You know, many times we kind of get scared by the book of Revelation. And there's many, many men that are significantly more qualified to talk about this book than I am. But I think many times we overcomplicate the book of Revelation as well. And I, th- I really believe that the lessons in the book of Revelation are intended to be much more practical than the, the broader Christian world would have us to believe. They're not, they're not all mystical and mythical and, you know, Harry Potter-ish like people would have you to believe as you read about all the language and the symbolism and all the things that John uses in his writing here. There's very practical lessons for Christians, and I believe it was designed that way. We're, we're, we're people that, that struggle to learn things. We're people that struggle to do the things, the simple things we've been asked to do. And I hope we can understand and find some practical lessons from these seven churches of Asia this morning. Hope you enjoy the study. The first church that's addressed in Revelation chapter 2 is the church at Ephesus. He says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, if you're familiar with these letters to these churches, you might remember that he starts off each one of the letters by commending them. For example, the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. I have this against you that you have left your first love. And it's fascinating to me that he addresses each of these churches and he somewhat commends them for the things that are going on there that they're doing right that they're doing good, that they're doing according to his word and his desire. But in each of the cases that we're going to talk about this morning, he, he finds fault with, with them about something. 
the church at Ephesus, he says that you've left your first love. You're doing all these things right. You're, you know, you're trying these, these false teachers. You're trying these men that you know, are teaching false things, and you're proving them wrong, and you're doing all these things good, but you've left your first love. You're somewhat dutiful, but there's nothing behind it. There's no meaning behind it. And I have this against you because of that. I'm going to make one quick change here. My notes went away. So if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'm going to see if I can get those back. We may just have to do without the presentation on the screen. I'm sorry about that. He goes on in Revelation chapter 2 to the next church. The church at Pergamos. He says to the church at Pergamos, right? I have a few things against you because you have there those who have the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing I hate. See, the church at Pergamos had completely different issues. They had issues with sexual immorality. They have issues with following after false doctrines. And so we look at these churches and we think, man, they just couldn't get it together. All these things that were going on, they couldn't get get their act together. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, this is verse number 20, Revelation chapter 2. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now we read some of these some of these examples as well, and we think, oh, this is, this is the kind of stuff that we don't worry about in our, in our congregations, in our cultures. This, you know, this, this idol worship, and, uh, you know, you think about all the conversations in the New Testament about Jews clinging to, you know, to the old law and how they had, um, you know, all the division about whether they could or couldn't eat things and all that kind of stuff. We don't, that's just stuff we don't worry about. They had whole problem. They had significant problems that affected whole congregations. But I think about verses that talk about things like the the amount of of leaven that it takes to affect the entire loaf. You know, just a little bit of leaven causes causes a change in the entire structure of where that's used, and how sin does that even in even in whole congregations, and how it's such a warning for us as well. Revelation chapter 3, he writes to the church at Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. This congregation had it pretty rough, the church at Sardis. He said they had a reputation for being alive, so, you know, they're probably saying and doing some of the right things. People, casual onlookers, look at this congregation and say, they're kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing, but he called them dead. And how much of a slap in the face would that be for the Lord to look at our congregation and say, you're dead? Is there anything worse that he could say to a congregation? Your, your, your works are not perfect before God. They had it pretty rough. And maybe the most famous, I guess, or the most notorious of these churches of ages, the church at Laodicea. And he said, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The lukewarm church at Laodicea. And certainly many lessons have been given on that church. And the idea of being lukewarm, they couldn't decide which team they wanted to play for. You know, they, they, they wanted to keep one foot in the world and cling on to those things that they love, but they wanted the, the things that God had to offer as well. And they didn't make a decision with their service. And he said, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And there's not a pleasant way to say that. It's a metaphor that I think is very intentionally used there to show his displeasure with that congregation. Brad and I went on a trip a couple of weeks ago, and we had an early flight coming home. I got a hold of some bad food the night before, and we had to get up at 3. And about midnight, I started puking my guts up. And it went on until we left for our flight. And there was not a thing about that experience that was pleasant. It's disgusting. It's miserable. It's painful. There's not even a way to talk about it that sounds good. And that's how he described the church at Laodicea, because of their indecisiveness with their commitments and their lives. He wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. And we look at these congregations and these churches in Asia and think, man, they, they really needed to get it together. There was a lot that they had wrong. And we kind of wonder what kept them from getting it together. And we wonder why the, how they got that way in the first place. What happened that things got so widespread. And I think, as I said, there's, there's kind of two, two ways we can look at this. Number one is the way that I said I've kind of got to be an expert on, where you look at somebody else's problems and you can point out their problems and shortcomings and analyze those. And there's some value in that. The, the scriptures are provided for us to learn lessons from those people. And so we can look at the things that they did wrong and use those to guard against. Or, or maybe and, we can also look at it through the lens of our congregation. And we can put ourselves in their shoes. And the older I've got, I think the more I've understood the value in that. If you can put, some, put yourself or attempt to put yourself in somebody else's shoes when you're thinking about problems or situations, that there's a lot of value in what you can learn there. You can be a lot more understanding and a lot more patient. And I think problems start to hit home a lot more when you try to do that. For example, with children. I had opinions about a whole lot of things before I had kids on how I would handle situations, hard situations. I'm not talking about just common child-raising situations. I'm talking about situations where a child falls into drug abuse or, you know, has a child at an early age or whatever. Alcohol problems gang problems, whatever it is. I had a lot of opinions on that before I had children that are very different now that I have children and, and know the love that a parent has for their kid and what they would want to do in those situations. And so this morning, I want us to put ourselves collectively in the shoes of the churches of Asia. And I want us to ask ourselves what it would look like if the Lord wrote a letter to the church at Amarillo. What would he say? Are you curious about that? Are you curious whether that would be a scathing letter? Are you curious if it would be a letter that would commend us for the things that are going on here? Are you curious about what the list would be? Maybe it would be a really long letter to address things that are going on. Maybe it wouldn't be so long. Are you curious about that? What if he wrote a letter to the church at Amarillo? That's what I want us to look at this morning.
And I've come up with some examples of some things that might appear in this letter. And I've, full disclosure, have taken some liberty with these examples. I've tried to look at things that I struggle with and come up with some examples that are meaningful for this discussion, for us to learn about this and think about this as we try to put ourselves in their shoes. And so while my intentions aren't necessarily to step on toes, my intentions are to kind of step on toes this morning. And I may have totally missed the mark with these examples, and you can correct me if I did that. I may have come up with some examples that one or two that hit home for you. That's certainly the goal is for us to get to thinking about this. And that's my desire this morning, that we would, that we would get to thinking about this. To the church at Amarillo, you're great about not missing the assembly, but you care too much about worldly things. You're here every time the doors are open, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Wednesday night. You have a gospel meeting, and you're here every night of that gospel meeting, and you do all the things that we schedule and have to participate in during that gospel meeting. But you're too much too concerned about the things of this world. Jobs, educations, making money, the pleasures that life have to offer. Would he say that to us? That we care too much about those things? You don't have time for me. To the church at Amarillo, you do a good job of outreach and you say that you care about other people, but you gossip and you backbite and you say awful things about the church or the members of the church, your speech doesn't reflect that you care about others like you say you do. You do some good things. You participate with the children's home. You do things down at the mission. You prepare meals at the Hope and Healing Place, and you talk awful about each other. You have nothing good to say about other members. Would he say that to us? I hope not. To the church at Amarillo, your singing is fantastic. It's beautiful. People comment on it when they come in your doors and they're uplifted and benefit by being here. But many times you care far more about the notes than you do about praising me. You ever find yourself in those shoes? This is one where my hand shoots up. I'm, and I'm not even any good at music. <laughs> but I get frustrated if a song's not on the tempo that I like. Or if we can't figure out how to hold a note for four beats instead of the one we always hold it for. Or maybe the guy gets up to lead a song that's not your favorite song leader. And I believe in excellence in worship. I believe we should strive to do our best in that. But I'd be lying if I said it was always motivated by excellence in worship and it wasn't motivated by frustration sometimes. Would he criticize us for that? It's a small thing, maybe. Maybe it's not a small thing. Wonder, I wonder sometimes if our conversation about those types of things would be the same if the Lord were in our presence, physically in our presence. Would we change our conversation about those things? To the church at Amarillo, you spend more time on your phone than you do in your Bible. And it's really not even close. It's really not even close. Maybe he would criticize us for distractions. The amount of time we spend worrying about all these other things and disseminating the information that our world has to offer. And how we can participate in that. And what information can I give back through social media or whatever the case is. We've talked a lot about that lately. We don't need to spend a lot of time about social media. Distractions in general. Would he criticize us for that? 
that we spend far more time digesting that kind of information than we do his information? Or maybe he would just write a short letter to the church at Amarillo. You're more worried about you than you are about me. Maybe he wouldn't need to say anything else. You're far more concerned about you than you are about me. And the way that you live your life reflects that. The proof is in the pudding. Whatever cliche you want to come up with, it's pretty hard to hide because of the way you spend your life. And maybe we would just want to make him vomit. What would he say about us? What would that letter look like? Maybe I missed the mark with some of these things. I don't know. Maybe I said some things that at least get you to thinking. That was my intention with trying to come up with some examples to make you and us think about these things. What what our letter would say if he were to write it. And that's the main takeaway this morning. I want us to think about that collectively. What the letter would say. And not specifically what the letter would say, but more specifically, what can we do to where we would have a higher level of confidence that if he were to write us a letter, a letter that we would be comfortable with the contents of that letter? What are some things we can do and guard against? Certainly we can look at specific sin problems that these churches had. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to think about some more general things and lessons that we can learn from them on how to guard against that. How, how we can ensure that our letter is a letter of commendation and not a letter of reprimand. Number one is we, we always have to be willing to do self-evaluations. We always have to be willing to look in the mirror. Another one of the things that I think age has taught me personally is that if I go back and look through the lens of time at all the problems that I've had in my life, there's a common denominator in all those problems, and it usually is me. And I think if we are willing to be a people that are okay with self-evaluation in all areas of life, really, but particularly spiritually, that I think it will do a lot in helping us develop an attitude in the right kind of a heart for a willingness to, to serve in the way that God would have us to serve. James chapter 1 and verse number 21, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. It's such a good example, isn't it? You think about looking in a mirror and the many times a day that we do that. You can't lie to yourself. You know, when you look in that mirror, you know if you need to lose those 10 pounds. You know if you look disheveled and need to clean up and slept in too late and now you your appearance reflects that when you should have been up and been busy working or whatever you needed to do that day the mirror doesn't lie but he said the man that walks away and forgets that it's not good if i look in the mirror and i know i need to lose that 10 pounds and i walk away and go straight to the kitchen and grab a donut i forgot what i just saw in the mirror 
But the man that looks in the mirror and sees what, understands what he sees, and his, and his actions following reflect that, he's the one that keeps the word, that does the word. We have to be willing to evaluate self. Number two, there has to be a desire to strive for per- perfection, and we have to have repentant hearts. If you read in Revelation chapter 3, as he's talking to the church at Sardis here, let's read verses 2 and 3. We, I skipped over those last time. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now listen to what he says. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You know, I think sometimes we think about repentance and we kind of box, box repentance into being a conversation to somebody that doesn't know the Lord. You know, it's, it's one of the steps needed to obey the gospel. It's, the scriptures outline that clearly, that repentance is a, is a crucial concept for somebody being forgiven of their sins. You cannot deny that. But I think sometimes we, we put it there and we leave it. He's talking to whole congregations here, and tell, tell, he tells every one of them to repent, to change your ways. Remember your first love, whatever it is, you need to repent. Wake up, he says. He says that several times. And we have to be willing to strive for that, and we have to be willing to repent. And repentance is something that should be always present in the life of a Christian. You should always be willing to make changes. If you're looking at the Word of God and evaluating and measuring yourself against it, you should always be willing to make changes to align it more closely with God's Word. Number three, the call to unity. He's not specifically addressing unity here, but to me, one of the fascinating things about this entire few few books in Revelations is the fact that he calls out congregations, not individuals. He calls out entire congregations. And I think it's fairly safe to assume there were probably men and women in these congregations that weren't participating in these specific problems that he lists. But when a, when a problem becomes widespread like that, when it becomes a problem for members of the congregation, it's a problem for the congregation. And I think there's a call to unity here for us to learn from. You know, you think back to high school sports and all those types of things. You think about how the team always got punished for actions of individuals. Maybe you didn't experience that. Maybe it was just my coach. But I think that's a fairly common thing in sports. I remember a, a specific time in high school in basketball practice. We had a, a kid that was pretty mouthy, and he went to mouthing off to the coach, so the whole team got to run suicides up and down the court. And it, it just kept going on. Coach said, are you done now? He goes, no, this is feeling pretty good. Okay, get back on the line. And we just did it for an hour. You know, just ran, ran and ran and ran. And this guy took some punches to the arm and the face and things like that after practice. But, you know, we, we look at those situations and form opinions about whether that is or isn't fair. But I think coaches, at, at a minimum, whether or not they execute it in the right way, you can make your own opinion on that. But I think at a minimum, they understand the, the value of the team. And so they understand the value of working together as a team. And yeah, even though it's one guy mouthing off, they understand that that one guy could destroy the team at some point. One guy could make the mistake that could mess the entire team up. And while he could have named the individuals by name, 
he understands that the, the little leaven leavens the whole lump and what it does to the congregation. And I think there's a call for unity there for us, that we need to understand that. We need to understand that, that one member's sin problem is everybody's sin problem, that we can help with that, that we can help them overcome that, that we can deal with that. We need to understand that one member's sin problem could become two members' sin problem. And that two members' sin problem could become three, and three could become five, and five could become 20, and all of a sudden the congregation is destroyed because of a sin problem. And we're getting a letter like this. There's a call to unity for us. We have to care about the word and the doctrine. Did you notice that he called out several of the congregations for following false doctrines? The doctrine of Balaam, Balak, and the Nicolaitans, all these things. You can go read about what all those are. The word has to matter. And we live in a society where the word matters less, I think, in, in, in the broader Christian world. Feelings and all those things, personal feelings and you know, self-help and all that is far more important than the word in many cases. And we can't get to the point where the word doesn't matter and that doctrine doesn't matter. Titus chapter 1, as he's talking about the qualifications of an elder... One of those things is this very thing. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's important enough that it became a qualification for somebody that is going to lead a congregation. The word has to matter. Because some man will try to change it. Some man will think his way is better and try to introduce that to a congregation to a few people. And doctrine matters and is important. And finally, we have to be willing to make commitments and follow through with those commitments. Commitments are something that are hard for many people to make. It's hard for people to commit to something. I think a lot of people that would choose Christianity don't do so because of the commitment that it would take. Certainly there's a humility in that and, uh, you know, being able to give up some control and all that kind of stuff. But there's a commitment level that's there that's required that keeps a lot of people from making that choice. And then there's a whole other group of people that make that choice and that commitment, and then the commitment fades away. Or we don't hold up our end of the bargain. We don't follow through with our end of the commitment. Listen to what he says again to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And in verse number 4 he says, But I have somewhat against you. See, they made the commitment. They were doing many things that he had asked them to do, but they didn't follow through with it. There was a, the one piece that was missing. And many times we make these commitments and then don't keep up in our end of the bargain. And congregations suffer for that. Now, you might have recognized that we listed five churches um, five problem churches, I guess you would say, as 
as we read through this. There's seven of these churches in Asia that we read about. A couple of the churches were commended for their behavior. Um, you know, I think it would be a little naive to say they didn't have any problems, but I think they had things in order enough that the Lord commended them for their behavior. One of those is the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church at Smyrna was commended for its behavior. And then the church at Philadelphia is one that got it right. You know, the term, even though we don't associate the, the city Philadelphia with friendliness and love and all the things that it means necessarily that you hear about on TV, the church at Philadelphia got it right. And as we close, I want to read what he says to the church at Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word and patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. They got it right, the church at Philadelphia. He said, he, he said they kept the word. They didn't deny his name. And they showed that patience and endurance and the things that he told the other churches to do. Be willing to repent. Be willing to change. What would it look like if he wrote a letter to us, to the church in Amarillo? I hope that the study has benefited you this morning. I hope, if anything, it kind of gets you to thinking about these things. Each person probably can come up with their own list of what the, the letter might say to the church at Amarillo. As you're thinking about that list, though, don't think about it just in the context of your life. There's other people around you here that matter. There's other people here that that conversation matters to. At a congregation level, not at a personal level. Certainly we need to make personal changes, but we need to, we need to be willing to commit to changes and make commitments on a broader level than just our personal, our personal desires and our personal needs. And I hope you've been benefited by the study of the morning. If you have any need that the church can help you with this morning, um, we offer an invitation at this time and certainly uh, offer any, any help that you feel like you need or desire that you have. Um, as always, we offer the Lord's invitation. If there's someone here this morning um, that has heard the gospel and has an understanding what they need to do to obey that gospel, the, the invitation's extended. Jesus said, come to me. 
If you labor and you're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that's the invitation that we offer this morning. If you have any need that the church can help you with, if you would have a seat here on the front and make your wishes known while we sing this invitation song.